Well, as you probably guess, having read the chapter um, in preparation for tonight and now having heard it read so well by Grant, um, and as Aaron has already said, chapter 24 is the longest chapter in Genesis, and of course, one of the longest in all of Scripture. But it is very well written. Um, because it's well written, it's, it's not really cumbersome, it's, it's not wearisome, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel at all like it's monotonous in any way, even with the large section that's repeated. We, hear, we basically hear the story twice. Um, it's a story of intrigue. Uh, there's a little suspense. Uh, there's several moments, at least four or five moments of, of uh, tension. And then there are four or five moments of resolution. Uh, and there's also a little bit of romance. Uh, maybe not how we would define romance today, but uh, there is romance in the story. And it's actually, we're, we're grateful, it's actually G-rated. Um, compared to some of the stories we've heard in the first 23 chapters. Um, and, and it has a hip, happy ending. I'm all for happy endings. Um, it's also a story of multiple layers. What I mean is it's more than just a story about an arranged marriage between Isaac and Rebecca. It's a story about a very important event in the course of redemptive history. And it's a story about Abraham making sure that the seed of promise was preserved and propagated. But then there's also another level because it contains illusions of our own salvation. And then finally, it's a story with multiple theological themes and applications regarding things like God's sovereignty and human responsibility and uh, divine providence and divine guidance, and covenantal faithfulness, and steadfast love, and obedience, and prayer, and yes, parenting and marriage. We're going to try to do all of that tonight. <laughs> but I need to give two qualifiers regarding what I have and have not done um, in, in terms of the preparation. First, I, I have put a great deal of effort into drawing out and addressing and applying these themes that I've mentioned, but I want to tell you up front that I probably haven't addressed or applied any one theme in particular at um, or as much as some of you might prefer. Just going to say that up front. Um, and second, while I have, have prepared to speak just briefly on parenting and marriage I have not prepared to advocate for arranged marriages, though I'm sure many of you in the room would prefer I did to justify all the effort you have put into making some of those arrangements already, particularly you fathers who I'm sure have already made proposals to other fathers in the room, but it's not going to happen. There are as many outlines as there are commentators and uh, pastors, and so I'm going to add mine to the mix tonight. You'll find it in the normal place in the back of the bulletin. We're going to look at four things. We'll look at a father's instruction. Uh, the majority of the text will, will be taken up in the servant's obedience. We'll look at a bride's faith, and then a son's comfort. Children, you'll find your words in the bulletin and also on your clipboard, so be listening for those. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Uh, Father, we ask for you to work by your Spirit. We ask that you would give us eyes and ears to understand your Word, so that as, as it's preached, that our hearts would be convicted, and our minds would be renewed, and our faith would be strengthened, and our wills would be fortified. Would you allow us to receive the word preached gladly and with anticipation? And as I always ask, would you fill me with your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace? I ask that you would attend to me as I do this work, and I pray that it would be something um, that both exalts the Lord Jesus and edifies His church. And I pray it in His name. Amen. So the chapter begins auspiciously. Uh, The very first verse says, Abraham was old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. The Lord had promised to bless Abraham, and He has kept that promise. Having obligated Himself to Abraham uh, through His covenant with him, God had bound Himself to act toward Abraham in a particular way, and He had done so. He had been doing so. He had been completely faithful to do so. So though there had been many ups and downs, and that's really an understatement for those of you who have been with us throughout our study of Genesis, and particularly since chapter 12, um, through it all, God had been good to Abraham. Abraham could look back over the course of his life, which those who are well advanced in years tend to do, and he could count his blessings, as the old hymn goes. He could count his blessings, and he could name them one by one. He could see all that God had done for him. He had been the benefactor of the kindness and the goodness and the mercy and the loyalty and the covenant faithfulness and steadfast love of the Lord. In Scripture, it's known, I'm going to try this Hebrew a little bit, it's, in Hebrew it's known as hesed. And it's the word that's used four times in our passage, three times in verses 12, 14, and 27 in reference to the Lord's relationship with Abraham. Beloved, I, I don't think I need to tell you that the Lord's covenant faithfulness and steadfast love was exhibited in its fullness at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself was chesed personified. He took on the curse of sin. He died the death of a covenant breaker, all for us who are the true covenant breakers. And he did so that we would be redeemed, that we would be set free. We too, as Abraham's offspring, spiritual offspring can say that we have been blessed in every way because we too are recipients and benefactors of God's covenant faithfulness. His love and loyalty toward us are steadfast because the Father's love and loyalty toward the Son is steadfast and vice versa. Because we are found in Christ, we know that to be true of ourselves as well. And because of that steadfast love and that loyalty, we should thank Him daily for that truth. We should worship Him. It it should motivate and undergird our worship, as we'll see in just a minute. Well, Abraham knew that he wasn't going to live forever. 
And his son Isaac, the one through whom these many descendants were supposed to come, was almost 40. And while it would have been, and, and, and because he's almost 40, he's also not married, so those descendants haven't started coming yet. And while it would be inappropriate probably for us, for someone now to go out, a, a father to now go out and search for a wife for his 40-year-old son, at that, at that time it was part of the responsibility for the patriarch and covenant head of the family. And when you add to that, that the son that he was going to search for, or the son for whom his search would be conducted, uh, was going to be the future patriarch. And the, wa- and the wife, or the woman, was going to be the future matriarch of God's people. It was right for him to do. So in light of God's covenant faithfulness in the past, Abraham confidently took action for the future. And he did so by choosing not only the oldest, but also the most reliable and loyal servant that he had. And he gave him instructions to find Isaac a wife. And as the story unfolds, as you heard it read, I'm sure you heard this, but as the story unfolds, we see what a wise choice this was. Because this servant, in the words of Derek Kidner, exhibits quiet good sense, his piety and faith his devotion, he, he showed piety and faith, he showed devotion to his employer and his firmness. He also uh, exhibited firmness in seeing the matter through. And the task that he was given wasn't just simply a request. In the words of Gordon Wenham, the sacredness of the servant's duty is underlined by the oath he is invited to swear. Abraham asked him to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and of earth, to find a wife for Isaac, and to do, and to do so among his family in Haran, not among the people of Canaan. In other words, the promised seed wasn't, wasn't simply to be preserved and propagated, it was to be protected. In the words of Richard Belcher, the elect seed of Abraham was to be kept separate from the other nations in order to remain faithful to the covenant and to ensure its future existence. And this, of course, is a precursor to the command that God gave to His people to marry only those within the covenant community that we find throughout the rest of Scripture, the rest of the Old Testament and into the New. His intention from the very beginning was to have a a people who were a holy nation. He wanted a people that were set apart unto him. They were set apart from all other people, and he wanted them to produce holy offspring. To marry outside of the covenant community would corrupt the seed and the offspring that he desired. But it went even deeper than that, and we we realize that as we, again, read into the Old Testament, into the New, but particularly in Malachi chapter 2, God said marriage outside of the covenant community was an issue of the heart. He said, doing away with the distinction between God's people and and pagan people was a profaning of the covenant, and in essence was to profane marriage would be a way of saying, we know that you desire to be our God, but we no longer desire or want to be your people. 
You may say you're our God and we're your people, but you may be our God, but we don't want to be your people. And beloved, God's desire for us as his people continues to be, to be a people set apart, undefiled, a holy nation who worship and follow the Lord God alone. That has not changed. He he desires to produce holy offspring who raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's why Peter is clear in our New Testament reading that Aaron read earlier in 2 Corinthians 6.14. He says that we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And again, Aaron said uh, that refers to or typically is used in context to talk about business relationships. However, there is no closer relationship, fellowship, or intimacy than between husband and wife. Therefore, if it's wrong for for people, um, or if if it's wrong for to unite two opposites in business, it's wrong to unite two opposites in marriage. I don't think we express to our children enough the importance of marrying believers. But attempting um, our children need to know that. Because marriage is difficult is, is difficult enough between believers. But to take opposites and attempt to unite them, how I don't know how that works. And more important than that, we need to stress to our children the same as we've mentioned from Malachi. We should be expressing the truth to our children that to profane marriage is to profane the covenant. To profane marriage is actually to say, I know you want to be my God, but I don't desire to be among your people. I don't desire to obey or to follow you. And I understand that there are many, many noble so-called, there there are many who take on the so-called noble and and righteous task of and position of marrying a non-believer in the hopes of winning them over to the Lord Jesus, to winning them over to Christ, living in such a way and within that relationship that the unbelieving spouse would come to Christ. But, But love, please hear me. That's the exception, not the rule. The rule is that bad company corrupts good morals. The rule is the unbeliever sways the believer down the path of idolatry. Fathers, like Abraham, you have the responsibility not to choose or arrange, but to guide and lead and instruct your children down the right path. And children, please hear me, it is your responsibility to not simply hear your parents, but to listen to your parents, listen to their instruction, listen to their warning. Children, please hear me, only marry someone who loves the Lord Jesus. Well, the servant obviously understood the weight of the task because he asks Abraham a question. He he is smart enough to know and, and and to find a couple of holes. And he asks Abraham very clearly, he says, okay, well, what if I go and I find the woman, but she doesn't want to come back? Should I come back, take Isaac, and go back to meet her? And Abraham says, absolutely not. 
Abraham is not to leave. He is to stay. We live here. We've been called here. God has led us here. We now live here. I don't want him going back. This is where we are going to stay. But he also said this. If she doesn't come back, you're off the hook. And then he said this. But I'm not worried. Because I know the Lord is going to provide. He's been faithful in the past. He will continue to be faithful in the future. He's going to go ahead of you. He's going to send an angel before you. He's going to work in the hearts of those that you're going to talk to. And you will be successful. Again, he has provided. He will provide again. This should bring back, right? We we should bring back memories of chapter 22. The Lord will see to it. Abraham exhibited the, the balance that needs to be maintained between God's sovereignty and his will and the fulfilling of the human responsibility that we have to act. It's a perfect illustration of Proverbs 3, 6. It says, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. It's a perfect illustration of Proverbs 16, 9 that says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Brothers and sisters, a life of faith includes both faith and trust in the sovereignty of the Lord and confident action. Not in action, because we know the Lord will go before us. He will establish us, and He will make our path straight. Well, the servant took the oath. I'm glad we shake hands. And he set out on what would have been anywhere from a months-long to a several-months-long journey. His caravan included 10 camels and all sorts of choice gifts, and that was going to communicate two things. It was going to communicate how well off Isaac and his family was, and it was also going to provide a bride price for the woman that he found. And when he arrives in Mesopotamia, he's very strategic. He strategically stops at a well outside of the city of Nahor, and it was strategic because it was the time of day uh, when the women would come out and come to the well and uh, to take back to, to their homes. But notice the first thing that he did was pray. And he prayed for success because he knew that his success was in the hands of the Lord. And notice he doesn't appeal to the Lord on his own behalf. You know, if it had been me, it had been, you know, Lord, please, you know, I've come such a long way. I've done so much. It's been hot. I've been obedient. So please hear my prayer and and do this for me. But the, the servant doesn't do that. He appeals to the Lord's steadfast love for Abraham. He said, I know you love Abraham. You've been faithful to Abraham. You've been loyal to Abraham. Please continue in that steadfast love. Please continue that chesed to him. Now, we don't know, but I think it's safe to say this wasn't his first prayer. He's had several weeks, if not months, to pray as he's traveled. And over the course of his trip, he's had plenty of time to consider all of the the potential outcomes. So, this is the culminating moment. This is the 
a moment of holy expectancy. This is a moment of anticipation of what the Lord was going to do. It was an expression of dependence. And it wasn't the last resor- it wasn't the last resort. It was his first option. It wasn't his last resort. It was his first option. And in the midst of this test, in the midst of this prayer, he includes a test. And it wasn't, it wasn't a test of faith. It wasn't if if Lord, I will put my trust and faith in you if you'll just do this one thing. It wasn't, Lord, I'll follow you all my days. If you'll just do this one thing, if this one specific thing happens, you've got me. No, what he said was, I'm looking for a woman of character for Isaac. I'm looking for more than a young, pretty woman. I want a woman who is humble and kind and selfless and hospitable and generous and industrious. So to make sure that I pick the right one, would you bring a woman who not only offers me water, but offers my camel's water as well? And to us, that really, it sounds really weird. And I get that. But we have to understand that it would take about 25 gallons per camel to replenish what they lost over the course of the trip. And so we can do the math. That's 80 trips down to the well and back, voluntarily. Someone who did that would need to be a woman of character. Now look at verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder. What does that mean? Well, it means she may have left the house before the servant started praying. Now, think about that for a minute. Possibly. I'm not saying it happened. I'm just, for her to show up before he's even through, depending on the distance from the house, she may have had to leave before he started praying. And so the question is, was God responding to Abraham's prayer or had he already begun to work before he started praying? In other words, was he working in the midst of Abraham, uh, in the midst of the servant's prayer, or was he working in the midst of the servant? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. He was at work prior to and in the midst of the servant's prayer. He was also at work in the midst of the servant. And I know that's mysterious to us. How does that work? We don't quite understand. We don't know how that's possible, but while we may not understand how, by faith, we believe that God was at work providentially bringing about this ordained encounter in His appointed time. Our confession says this, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least, by His most wise and holy providence, according to His infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of His own will, to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Beloved, be encouraged. 
be encouraged because God is continually working this very same way in your life. So much so that there is no such thing as fate, coincidence, luck, or chance. And it's only because He ordains all things that we are, we are able to confidently believe and say that He works all things together for our good. And this story also tells us that prayer is an instrument of His providence. It's not just an instrument of His providence, it's also a response to His providence. And it's, well, in light of that, just a couple of questions for us that we ought to ask ourselves. One, is prayer our last, you knew this was coming, is prayer our last resort or our first response? Do our prayer lives reflect that we only lean on it when we've tried everything else? Or does it reflect our reliance upon a sovereign God and our rest in His providential work and His providential care in our lives in the day-to-day? And parents, a question for you. Are you praying for the spouses of your children? Are you praying that they not only love Jesus, but that they are people of character? those who are gracious and humble and kind and selfless and hospitable and generous. It's never too early to start. Well, Moses and Rebecca, or Moses said Rebecca was young, very attractive, and even said pure. And when she comes up from the well with her water, the servant can't contain himself and he runs to her. And when he gets to her, she offers, or he asks for a drink, and she, she obliges. She says, here, have a drink. And oh, can I water your camels as well? And he, of course, was speechless. Right? In one sense, he was strong and in, in, in faith, right? Believing that, that God was going to do this, and yet he was exposed, Is this really the one? I mean, is God really going to check all these boxes with the first woman that comes up? And so he asks, whose daughter are are, are you? How about what's your name? But whose daughter are you? And she says, I'm the daughter of Bethuel. And my grandparents are Nahor and Micah. And he knows immediately that that means that she is the daughter of Abraham's nephew. And he immediately bows his head. The text says he bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, for uh, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. And Rebecca hears this prayer. Right? She watches the whole thing transpire, so she hears his prayer, and she hears just as he understood that she was Abraham's, um, the daughter of Abraham's nephew, she understood that he had come 
from her relative. I tried to figure out, great uncle? Came from a relative. And so she runs home to tell the family what's happened. And her brother Laban's there, and text says he sees the jewelry. Hold that thought for chapter 29. But he sees the jewelry, 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 and he runs to go find the servant, and he invites him back. He hears the story too, but the jewelry and the story cause him to go. He brings the servant back. He unsaddles the, the camels and, and waters them and gives the servant some water to wash himself and then provides food for him. But the servant has a task. He's got something that he needs to do and he, he, he wants to get that done before he eats. And so he begins to tell the story of, of all that had happened. And of course, he tells him about Abraham's wealth, and he tells him about how difficult it was for Abraham and Sarah to have Isaac, and then he tells him about the instructions that he had been given and the oath that he's taken. He tells him about the questions that he had and, and the confidence that Abraham had that, of, of the Lord going before him and the, and the angel working in their hearts, and um, he, he told them of the encounter he has with Rebekah. He tells him of what she says and, and, and the answer to his prayer. He tells him what, what he prayed, and then he tells him about Rebecca and how she answered that prayer. And, and then he does this, something very shrewd. He then looks at the family, and he says, are you going to do what God did? Are, are you, are you going to show the same steadfast love to Abraham that the Lord has shown to Abraham? And of course, how can they say no to that? Who are we to say no to the Lord? Of course we're going to do that. And again, the servant bows himself and begins to worship. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly what God's providence should elicit in us. God's providence should elicit worship. It should elicit thanks. It should elicit praise. Again, a quick question. Are you, am I, are we quick to worship? Are we quick to thank the Lord? Are we quick to praise Him when we, when we know and see the answers to our prayers. When we are able to discern His providential work in our lives, how do we respond? Well, that brings us to the bride's faith. Moses said the next day the servant got up and he was ready to go. He wanted to get back. He didn't want any time to waste. But Laban and Rebekah's mother are a little reluctant to let her go. But he reminds them, remember, the Lord's in this. You've already said you want to do what the Lord desires. And they said, well, let's, let's wait. It's kind of custom here in Mesopotamia. We're going to ask, ask, the, ask her what she wants to do. We're going to ask Rebecca. She needs to consent. And they said, do you want to go? And in verse 51, her response is short and sweet. I will go. I will go. And like 
her soon-to-be father-in-law, like he had done so many years before. She exercised and exhibited faith by being willing to leave all that she knew, her country, her, her home, her family, to go to a place that she had never been, all because the Lord said go. I'm going to come back to her in just a minute. Our last point, a son's comfort. Moses said Isaac was meditating out in the field. The caravan approaches. Again, this has been a month or more. Uh, Rebecca asks, who's that that's coming? The servant says, that's my master. She covers her face with a bridal veil. When they arrive, the servant introduces the two of them. And here's the romance. Well, I mean, I guess there's been romance before then, but here's the romance. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. There's the ultimate resolution. Right? There's the happy ending. But that's not the end of the text. Moses adds this. He says, so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. That was very odd to me. I wrestled with that most of the week. I even told Aaron, I, I can't get this verse out of my mind. Um, so I sought help, and Pastor Dale Davis helped. Um, this story is a pivotal point in redemptive history. But this last line tells us that God is not only concerned about redemptive history. He is interested and concerned about the day-to-day. -day. He's not just interested in the big scheme of things. He's interested in the minor details. Isaac loved his mom, and he missed her. She was sad, or he was sad, and and grieving. And this has been several years. So Rebecca wasn't just the one through whom the seed would be preserved and propagated. Rebecca would be the one through whom the Lord would bring comfort to Isaac. The Lord saw fit to work providentially, not on a spiritual kingdom level, but on a personal, emotional level, all at the same time. He cared, again, take heart, be encouraged, because our God cares for us corporately and individually. Our God cares for us generally, and He cares for us specifically. He is concerned about your every need. Now, I said we'd come back to Rebecca. And I flew through those last two points. I know, and I qualified that before we began. But I wanted to have time to close this way.
Many of us in this room need to be reminded of something tonight in particular, and that is we need to be reminded that just like Rebecca, who in the words of Donald Gray Barnhouse, was thought of before she knew it and was chosen when she did not know of the existence of the bridegroom. I'm going to read that again because that's really good. Rebecca was thought of before she knew it and was chosen when she did not know of the existence of the bridegroom. Dear Christian, God chose you before the foundation of the world. He chose you before the foundation of the world and predestined you to adoption, redemption, and forgiveness. And He's done more than lavish you with jewelry. He's lavished you with grace. All according to the kind intention of His will. And God the Son, Jesus Christ, accomplished your salvation through His perfect life, horrendous death, resurrection, and, ascended, and, and ascension. And both the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to apply that salvation to you. They sent Him to draw you to Jesus. They sent you to draw you to the Son, and He succeeded. By God's grace, you have been united to Christ and are a part of His bride. You need to hang on to that. You need to hear that today before you head out tomorrow. But there are most certainly some in this room who are not Christians. You have not acknowledged that you are a sinner in sight of God and justly deserving of His displeasure and without hope except in His sovereign mercy. You have not repented of your sins. You have not turned to faith in Christ, the Savior of sinners. You have not received and therefore you are not resting in His forgiveness that is offered only in Him. But please hear this. You are not here by coincidence. You are not here by accident. Therefore, I, as a servant of God who have been called by Him to announce the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, I need to ask you, Not simply will you go to, it's better to say, will you come to Christ? Will you come to Christ? Will you forsake your sin? Will you leave the life you've known and forsake all and cling to Him? Repent and believe. Jesus Christ is your only hope. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive your word with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. For your glory and for our good and for the sake of Christ and his church, I pray. Amen.